Big Conversations Little Bar with your hosts Randy Florence and Patrick Evans featuring candid conversations with the Coachella Valley's most interesting and influential people. Pull up a bar stool and enjoy Big Conversations Little Bar. Welcome again to Big Conversations Little Bar. I am Randy Florence and I'm here with my co-host Patrick Evans. Patrick, thanks for being here again. Oh, you twisted my arm. Coming back to Little Bar. All right, if I have to. Damn it. It's hard. <laughs> the only way that we could put this podcast together and guarantee Patrick's turnout every time was to do it in a bar. So I'm really glad you're here. Thank you. Hey, I want to get right into this because we try got, not to spread that around. My <laughs> wife listens to this. <laughs> my wife actually will be in here in a few minutes. I don't have to keep it from her. And mine's at home. Oh, oh good. Okay. Go. Uh, well, that was our guest. They just said something there. So let's take a moment and introduce our guest. I, I'm really excited about this. Um, our guest today, Carrie Baker, has a career in music publicity for more than 40 years. 42 to be exact. 42 to be exact. The company that he owned, uh, he just closed that down and retired almost exactly a year ago. The labels in the industry that he's worked with were IRS Records, Enigma, Capital Records, and that was all before starting his own firm. That's right. Uh, Kangaroo in 2004. He's worked with some of the biggest and most influential musicians ever. R.E.M., Bonnie Raitt, Tina Turner. The Beastie Boys, Cheap Trick, yes, Nils Lofgren, Marshall Crenshaw. The list just goes on and on and on. Kerry, thank you so much for joining oh, my, us here today. Pleasure. I'm so excited about my pleasure. it. So my first question to you is, how's retirement going? Uh, not very. Uh, <laughs> if, if you were to ask my wife, uh, she would say, oh, he's not retired. He's just changed professions. My, uh, my goal was to write a book, but I didn't realize what a deep dive that is. Oh, my gosh. And I'm just starting. Uh, we're, we're just uh, it, contracts are, are nearly completed, and uh, uh, I won't. I don't want to reveal the topic quite yet, but uh, it's going to be a deep dive. It's going to be heavy research. Is this based on the history that you've worked through, or a different topic than that? Uh, I am part of some of the history, and I uh, some of it predates my existence on this planet. So, <laughs> uh, some of the some of the people I can interview, others are deceased. Uh, I'm looking for eyewitnesses to some of the uh, uh, the dearly departed and uh, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a big project uh, but you know the way I look at it is uh, when I moved here uh, in July uh, somebody asked what my summer strategy is and I said no what <laughs> and, and they said no this is you the, didn't know you needed one right? I, I didn't know I needed one uh, we've been here for four day weekends but four months a little different story so uh, my summer strategy is uh, I used to work from 6 to 6. I would wake up uh, basically due to insomnia about 5.30, have my cold brew coffee in the, re in the fridge uh, down, down the gullet, and I would work till about 6 p.m., so 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And seven days a week, you said. And seven days a week. And uh, your company motto was? Music publicity since 6.30 this morning. 6.30 this morning. That would give me a you know, half hour to get, get the cold brew working before I was <laughs> held accountable for anything. Uh, anyway... Uh, uh, my, my, my strategy now is I do yoga at about 10 in the morning. I get home about 11. Uh, I have lunch with my wife, and then uh, I'm going to disappear for four hours until there is a ribbon of shade over our western exposure backyard and pool. Uh, boy, it's not the heat in Palm Springs or Palm Desert. It's, it's the sun. Yeah. Oh, my God. So uh, uh, anyway, I, I will write about four hours a day. So when you, uh, you talk about going and writing a book, this is really kind of going back to your roots because you were you were a journalism major and you started out in journalism before moving to PR. That's right. 
I uh, and what what pushed you from one to the other? I, I work in journalism, and I see it. A number of my colleagues, sure. it can be enticing. Uh, sometimes we call it the dark side. Uh, <laughs> it's been called the dark side many times to my face. Yes, it was indeed. Um, I I was a journalism major. I, I learned most of what I needed to learn about journalism uh, in a a, a an ex- very good high school journalism class. So, so being a major in, in college, it's like I learned this in high school. Right. But uh, all the while, I was I was a pop music reporter for the uh, Daily Paper at uh, Northern Illinois University, a, a couple hours outside of Chicago. Are they the uh, Huskies? Very good, very good. Uh, NIU, and not not known to many out of staters, but uh, there you go. Well, you uh, share something in common with uh, our anchor at uh, KESQ News Channel Three, John White. He's a uh, he's a Northern Illinois Husky. How about that? Wow. Well, That's so two of you. <coughs> That's three, because John's wife is, too. Okay. So there you go. Wow. You can have wow. an alumni meeting now. We, we certainly can. <laughs> uh, I was a journalism major. I, uh, uh, by then, I had already uh, you know, written for the Chicago Reader. Uh, and that dates back to uh, my father taking me to a place called Maxwell Street in Chicago, uh, which is gone now. Actually, it, it, there may still be a street, but it used to be a place where you would see, uh, 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 well, Street singers mm-hmm. and uh, buskers and uh, a, a lot of things for sale on, on on you know flea market. It was you know all all these products and all these huskers. And, uh, anyway, I, I one day I was walking around the Northwestern campus in Evanston, Illinois, a Chicago suburb, and I saw this thing called the Chicago Reader, about issue uh, one. I thought, wow, this is cool, an alternative weekly, not an underground paper, not a daily paper, uh, kind of slick. Why don't I send them a, a story on Maxwell Street, uh, Chicago? Uh, and I did, and I typed it up. Uh, I had no uh, tentacles into the... I, I, anyway, I put it in the mail, you know, dropped it off at the mailbox, as we used to do before email, and uh, they accepted it. So I, suddenly I was writing for the Chicago Reader. I was one of a handful of music writers, and there were some who were definitely older and more sophisticated, but in no time I was interviewing rock bands and doing one thing or another, I, I, I got into blues, and I, I started a little blues fanzine, uh, and, and lo and behold, I have subscribers from all over the world, including some famous writers like Nick Toshes, who is a famous author, and, and uh, Peter Goralnik, who, who's written many books about music. Uh, so I, I did that for a while. Uh, I decided that I needed to get out of blues and into rock if I was going to, like, meet girls. <laughs> so, uh, or at least uh, the girls you wanted to meet. Exactly. Yes. So it was about 1970 or so, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm suddenly now listening to Lou Reed and David Bowie and T-Rex. Uh, I, I, I get to NIU. I'm a journalism major now. And somebody tells me about a great band I need to see called Cheap Trick. Uh-huh. Uh, they're, they're local. Um, and uh, I, uh, accordingly... Um, uh, went out and saw them, and, and oh my God! And then they're from Rockford, Illinois. From, from where? You know, Rockford doesn't have great rock bands. Uh, you know, <laughs> any more than San Bernardino does, or any more than a, a Fresno does. But but there they were. So I wrote maybe the first ten stories on them, uh, and I, I kept on writing about them. Uh, uh, lo and behold, uh, uh, you know, I. I, I I'm being quoted in all these books that are being written about them uh, from my articles. And you're in high school. Uh, No, by now I'm in college. Oh, okay. (laughs) My my college town of DeKalb, Illinois, was a hoop and holler from from Rockford. But I still had to either drop my copy in the mail or drive it up through the snow drifts (laughs) from DeKalb to Rockford, which was about 30 miles in the snow. 
And uh, I, I was never very good at driving in the snow, and I really hope I don't need to go back for an emergency or something because I, I kind of forget. Well, until a month ago, we wouldn't have thought you had to deal with that here. Exactly, so. <laughs> exactly. Well, it, it's up, uh, it's up uh, on top of the mountains where, it, where it, you know. Uh, you know, I, I, I've looked at that time period um, when you were in high school. <clears throat> you and I are about the same mm -hmm. age. We went to high school the same years, except I was listening to the Grassroots and Paul Revere and the Raiders and the Monkees. And you were moving off to a completely well, different area. Then you must be a year or two older because that was my high school to a, to a T, a junior high to a T. Yeah, I was. Uh, well, I started high school in seventy. Oh, so a year behind you. I oh, think. actually, okay. Yeah. Then we are the same age. So we were. I felt like I was right a little bit past the Woodstock area. Mm -hmm. So. Creedence Clearwater was hard rock to me right. back in those years. Um, what was what took you a direction that a lot of kids at that age weren't moving at that time? Well, I, I came prepared to talk about that, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so uh, one day I was looking through the Chicago Sun-Times, and they had like, you know, daily papers used to be like, you know, Bibles. They weren't just like, you know, uh, 10 pages. Uh, we still subscribe to, to one or two of them uh, on our driveway every day with a thud. Uh, still support the local uh, uh, print edition press. It's a softer thud these days. <laughs> it, it's a softer thud. It does not wake us up. Anyway, so about 1968, I was looking through the radio listings. They don't even have TV listings in the LA Times anymore. But this was the Chicago Sun-Times, and they had radio listings. And I saw a radio listing for uh, underground radio, uh, songs not often played on AM Teeny Bopper Radio, WOPAFM. I hadn't heard of the station. I'll try it out. It, it, it said that Saturday nights at like uh, maybe 8 or 9 at night, uh, you know, the underground rock show was on. I'm like, what? But I, but I kind of got it. I kind of knew what they were saying. I, I knew about this album rock. I, by then, I, we, we had a record store in my hometown of Wilmette, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. And I would go listen to records, albums, like in their listening booths right. where you could like sit down and close the door and not necessarily have to buy Usually buy from the record store down the street that was cheaper. <laughs> but anyway, so, I, the so I, I was prepared for the, the coming of underground rock. Anyway, I, w I, remember, I, was, I, I remember I was home and I, I was sick. That's all I remember, maybe with a cold or the flu or something. And I heard Muddy Waters mm. on this underground radio show. And it was not only Muddy Waters, who was, you know, the king of Chicago blues, any way you slice it. <clears throat> but uh, it was from his Electric Mud record which has been scorned by critics because it was like this psychedelic record that didn't really reflect his Mississippi Delta roots. It was more like, uh, um, you know, uh, trying, to, trying, to, trying to appeal to the rock fans like me. And guess what? It worked. <laughs> so the song was, I Just Want to Make Love to You. And uh, I thought, well, that's a powerful thing. That, it's a powerful song. I, I more or less knew what that meant. I was about 12 years old. Uh, but it had all these psychedelic guitars. And uh, I, I remember my father was a classical record collector, so we, he and I would go shopping, and, uh, um, you know, he would buy his classical records, and I bought Electric Mud, and I brought it home, and I, I just, it changed my life. But not the least of which, I looked on the back of it, and it said Chess Records, Chicago, Illinois, 60616. I thought, oh my God, this has been happening in my backyard. I had no idea. So I, I decided that changed my life then and there. I thought, A, I want to work for a record company. I want to work for this record company. And I didn't know you could even do that in L.A. I mean, sorry, in Chicago, because I thought all the record companies were in L.A., where I've never been, incidentally. 
Uh, my parents had never taken me at that point to, to California. They'd never been to California themselves at that point. Um, so I, I started a blues magazine called Blue Flame, and it was typed. And I would, I would sort of guess it where the columns were, and it would have two, <laughs> two, 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 two columns. You and, didn't have uh, a printing press. I, no, I, I went to Sir Speedy with an empty, empty, <laughs> empty vacation suitcase. And uh, I would take the municipal bus from Evanston, where Sir Speedy was, back to Wilmette, my hometown, you know, lugging a suitcase before they even had wheels. And I'd have to walk, you know, about three or four blocks with this heavy suitcase with about a thousand copies of my, my now published uh, magazine, which then I would mail. And I didn't necessarily have mailing labels. I would write the subscribers' addresses each time. I mean, this was very... You, you were you know, physically mailing out each copy to the subscribers. I was the writer. I was the editor. I was the oh. subscription clerk. Wow. <laughs> so anyway, one day I got up the, uh, the nerve to call Chess Records. And, and by then, too, I'd also gone into my high school FM radio station, WNTH, 88.1 FM, 33 watts of, 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 of power. But you know what? That got it throughout the township. We'll met Winnetka, Evanston, Skokie. And it even got it a little bit into the city. Uh, so I suddenly had a radio show. And I, I called Chess and said, can I come over? Can I come down? And I forget whether I jumped on the, the L train or my mother took me. But one way or another, I was connected to the public relations director of Chess Records. I thought, damn it. This is exactly the job I want when I grow up. And um, you knew it already. I knew it. I knew it at about age 13, 14. Wow. And by the way, I was, I was promoted then to public relations director and music director of my high school radio <laughs> station. Again, I'm 13 or 14. I'm flunking algebra. <laughs> I was pretty but good. You at, pretty much knew you was, didn't care about algebra. I was pretty good at English <laughs> and uh, I was pretty good at writing. And I was able to. to so, so that I noted as well. But no, I had to repeat uh, algebra. Uh, I, I, my, my, my high school was more extracurricular than curricular. Anyway, I went to Chess Records, and they gave me, like, all of these uh, records and 45s, which, you know, turns out were, were pretty valuable. And, and, they, and then they took me, like, through the publicity photos. They gave me a very rare photo of Chuck Berry. But anyway, I, I thought, this is just the coolest thing on earth. Did you really appreciate what was in front of you at that point? I did. Wow. I did. Yeah. And uh, as well, I had met a, a legendary, but, 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 you know, not exactly household name, blues piano player named Sonny Land Slim. All right. He played on a lot of records. And I had met him at a record store. Uh, and, I, and again, I'm like 13 years old. And he's painting the ceilings of Chess Records in the lobby. And I, I go up to him, and I'm this naive suburban kid. I said, hey, Sonny Land, how you doing? <laughs> and he looked at me and said, you can tell how I'm doing. And I think, I think that, that trip to Chess Records taught me everything I needed to know about the universe. It taught me a lot about everything, really. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was sobering, but it was inspiring. Well, you and saw the, the ups and the downs. I saw the ups and the downs. I saw that the artists had to paint ceilings to, 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 to supplement their musical career. They how, how did that... Um, in your role as, as publicity, mm. I've read a lot about the services that you provided to your mm. clients. And, and just as one person said, you would have cut the, the uh, corners off of their toast if, if they wanted them to, <laughs> uh, if they way. asked you to exactly. do that. Um, <laughs> how did what you saw at that time impact you in terms of being a publicity person for people later on? Uh, well, um it did. Well, going, going to Chess Records that day and meeting the public relations director. And by the way, uh, you know, it's not public relations department at record companies nowadays. It's publicity. 
but but uh, uh, I thought, wow, public relations, you know, dealing with people who like call off the call, cold call like I did. I didn't realize it was like contacting the press. But I but I, I learned that by being public relations director of my high school radio station and going to the Real Met Life, the, the the local suburban weekly, and the Winnetka Talk, and the the Glencoe News, and the the Evanston Review, and saying, "Hey, we've got a we've got a uh, jazz show. Will you write about it?" Uh, no, okay, <laughs> I, I get it. But I, I decided that I had passions for two things at that point. One was media, whether it was radio or, or print. Media was a passion. And, and music was a passion, and, and record companies had become a passion. So there, there weren't a lot of record companies in Chicago, but there were a few. Obviously, there was chess, but as I found out, I later found out there was Mercury Records. I mean, you know, uh, Rod Stewart, hello. Uh, uh, Graham Parker, The Runaways, uh, those even aren't good examples. 10CC, uh, Bachman Turner Overdrive. So sh- All above Mercury. All on Mercury, which was located in downtown Chicago. If you wanted soul... Uh, Chicago was one of the homes. I mean, it wasn't Motown, it wasn't Stax, but we had Kurt Tom, which was Curtis Mayfield. We had uh, 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 Brunswick Records, which was the home of Jackie Wilson, uh, the Shy Lights. Oh, yeah. And, and by the way, I, I, I later found out that by being music director, which my job was to collect records for the radio station, you know, not, not so much to say no to, to, to record promoters, but to, to go and get the records. So I discovered there was a record row in Chicago, and I, I flipped out. <laughs> I mean, Gene Chandler, the Duke of Earl, had an office on South Michigan Avenue. Basically, record row was 1300 South Michigan Avenue to 2300 South Michigan Avenue. That included Chess, Brunswick, uh, Jerry Butler, the soul singer, had an office there. Uh, all, there were all these For your co- precious love. Exactly. So they're all, it was, you know, Music Row in Nashville nominally still exists, but Chicago had one. And I thought, damn it, this is where I want to live. This is where I want to work. This is what I want to do. So when you got out of uh, Northern Illinois yeah. and, and you knew that this was kind of the trajectory you wanted to take, what, what did you do? What was your first move? My first job was editing a music magazine, a monthly music magazine, Southern Californians may remember BAM magazine oh, out yeah. of L.A. So this was the Chicago equivalent called Triad. And uh, they set me up in an office. Uh, I, I was a th- like the, f- the fifth or sixth editor, actually. But, you know, there was an office. and uh, But at some point, there were some layoffs. And basically, it was down to me and the sales director until the sales director stopped coming into work. And <laughs> well, I, I, I think I see the handwriting on this wall. So I, 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 was, for, I was a freelance writer. I had, uh, you know, I was writing for the Chicago Reader, like I said, and the Illinois Entertainer, and a couple of magazines now, uh, national magazines. But um, I got an offer from a, a record company in Chicago that I, I had heard of called Ovation Records. And uh, it wasn't really well known for uh, anything that was happening out of the Chicago office. They had a Nashville office, and all of a sudden they, they were like this big country label. They had a father and son duo called, called the Kendalls, who I'd never heard of because I was like this punk rock kid. But uh, the Kendalls were a father and daughter duo from St. Louis by way of uh, now Nashville. And they had a Grammy, and they had a, a couple of gold records, and they were basically paying the bills at this record company ovation. And would I come in and be the head of national publicity? All right, what, what else am I doing? I'm, I'm about 24 years old now. So, uh, you know, the pay wasn't great, and it was out in the suburbs. It was kind of in this cool, cool house made of boulders. I'd never seen a house made of boulders. Uh, it's like the stone facade house. Yeah. Uh, 
And I, I think they still have it. It's, it's like a like a CPA firm now or something there. But uh, I worked there for two years until I was laid off. But it was a real education because I went to Nashville. And uh, the Nashville people didn't take so kindly to me. It's like, <laughs> who's Chicago the Chicago boys? The Chicago guy. Yeah. Ch- Chicago Yankee. But, uh, but the, some of them were nice to me. And I did find some, some real advocates who taught me the ins and outs of Nashville and basically prepared a punk rock kid for the, the oncoming of a genre that, of music that didn't exist until way later called Americana. Yeah. But I'm jumping ahead of the narrative here. Uh, anyway, I, I, you know, they, they did have a, an artist named Joe Sun. And I was promoting him when I was working for that label as the Springsteen of Country. And, and a couple of coworkers said, you, you get that? Gary said, the Springsteen of Country. <laughs> uh, but you know what? It wasn't too far off. And he's since passed on. I, I was going to try to make him a project later in life, whether he paid me or not, to make him. the. He wasn't going to be the Springsteen. He wasn't going to command $1,000 ticket prices. But, but in terms of integrity and being the first Americana artist, perhaps. So, Joe Sun, rest in peace. Uh, you taught me a lot about what, uh, what would later be a genre that I would uh, be very involved with, Americana, which is essentially alternative country. But that didn't exist for, for quite some time. But anyway, I worked for Ovation until they laid me off, which was about two years in. They laid off the entire pop music staff uh, out of, out of uh, Chicago. And now, when that happened, did you... Did you kind of freak out? Or no, not, you, not at all. I, okay. was, I was freelancing, and my, my rent was about 250 I, I had moved now to a coach house in the Wrigleyville, near Wrigley Field, oh, side, yeah. side of Chicago. And I had this, this house that was about, you know, 400 square feet, about a 200-square-foot room on top of a 200-square-foot room. And the upstairs was the bedroom, and the <laughs> downstairs was the combined living room with kitchenette. Very open concept, by the way, very ahead of its time. <laughs> and, and by the way, it's still there. I pass it every time I go to Chicago. My rent was about 250 bucks at the time. And, probably uh, 6000 a month. You know, and I, I would get paid about a uh, 100 for, from the reader and about a 100 from the Illinois Entertainer and a 100 from someone else. And I still had parents I could call, too, if I really got into <laughs> trouble. I mean, I was only 24. Like, sure, how much, you know, anyway. So uh, I did that until uh, one day, uh, and I was still writing, and I was getting all these press releases. A press release came in the mail, uh, like, like uh, a letter. And it's the middle of winter now in Chicago, which... You know, I, I, I still think I like summers in Palm Desert a little more than I like uh, winters in Chicago. Well, there's nothing to shovel in the summer There's here nothing to shovel. Time. Nothing to shovel. And the, the, this, I opened this letter. What else was I doing in a 70 below zero day? <laughs> and it said, uh, so-and-so is leaving as head of publicity for IRS Records. I thought, IRS Records? My God, that's the home of the Go-Go's and REM, you know. I just came from a label. It wasn't as, as cool a label as this. But it said, uh, qualified candidates should apply to so-and-so. I thought, well, snow is falling. It's 70 below. Uh, I'm qualified. I see this guy's name. I've never heard of him. He's never heard of me. And I, 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 I had a resume that I prepared, and I, I wrote a cover letter, and I made it the best cover letter I've ever written. And uh, uh, I, I, I walked it to the post office in Chicago, which was about... A mile round trip, uh, but that's a lot saying 70, 70 below windchill. Uh, mm. I, I bundled up, but I, uh, yeah, I, I didn't want to take my car out of its parking space or I'd never get the parking space back. <laughs> you know, I, I, you so know. I'd rather have hypothermia. I'd rather have hypothermia, <laughs> exactly. I could, I could feel the, 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 the nose hairs freezing. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I mailed the letter, and, uh, um, and then I, I go up about my business thinking, yeah, right, uh huh. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So I, I keep on doing what I always did, and I keep on writing articles and dropping those off at the post office, too, because that's how you 
dropped off articles. Hey, can you mail it by Monday so it gets to us by Thursday? <laughs> hard, hard to imagine, right? Anyway, I get a call one day from the, you know, the reference person at IRS Records saying, can you be in, in California? Can you be in L.A. in three weeks? Well, guess what? I had made arrangements for a bit of a winter vacation to L.A. Uh, I'd been there once or twice. I, uh, I, I had a couple of places to stay. And I said, as a matter of fact, yes. Um, so I, I, I made arrangements then to, and I brought a, a good pair of interviewing clothes. What I didn't bring was like three or four different pairs of inter- interviewing clothes because uh, I ended up coming back to meet with different people every day. I'm thinking, holy, holy crap. You know, they, they, they wouldn't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 24, by then about maybe 27, but, you know, they want me to come back. You assumed that was a good sign, I guess. I imagine that was a good sign. Yeah. So I met with finally the president of the label, having met with the head of business affairs, met with the head of marketing, uh, met with the head of pr- radio promotion, I met with the head of the creative services. And then I went back to Chicago thinking, well, this was all well and good, but I will now resume, resume my life in the, <laughs> the miserably cold Chicago winter. And, uh, and, and that'll be that. And plus, I've been told the 60 people that applied for the job, 40 <laughs> had been interviewed and 20 had been interviewed twice. Mm. I'm thinking, yeah, fat chance. So I get to Chicago and uh, uh, back from my little vacation. I, I had a good time. I went to the Roxy. I went to the Starwood. I went to the, the Whiskey. It was a real education. All the hot spots, yes. Yeah. You know, exactly. It actually was. So, uh, and, and, and I get a call from the... The president of the company think, saying, we, we think we'd like you to do this. I'm like, what? <laughs> 60 people applied for this. Uh, well, we think we'd like you, like you to. Uh, I, could I have overnight to think about it? Thinking, you know, uh, I, yeah, right. Uh, the answer is yes. But in the meantime, <laughs> I, I called my, my music attorney and uh, I said, you know, uh, what do, I do? do I need you to negotiate this? Well, it doesn't sound like they're offering you a contract, but I would just take the job, call them back tomorrow and say yes. So I did. I said, how long do I have before you need me? Two weeks. Thinking, what? I mean, I, I, I had to notify my landlord, who was very cool about you know, letting me go. Uh, but uh, um, I, I basically uh, asked if they would put my car and my other possessions on a truck if they needed me in two weeks. I wasn't about to drive in that in the Chicago winter yeah. or the Nebraska winter or the, the Kansas winter or the Oklahoma winter. <laughs> Any winter until you got to California. So I took two yeah. suitcases, and they put my car and my other belongings on it. Plus, I, I didn't know where I was going to live. So I lived in the Sunset La Brea Travel Lodge for two weeks working out of the <laughs> A&M lot. <laughs> And, uh, so the A&M lot? The A&M Records lot, yeah. <laughs> That's great. And uh, which, which uh, really struck me one night when I was working late, which, which we, we did at this company, and you wanted to because REM, the Go-Go's, you know, they were paying me 28000 a year, which was commensurate with my age. And, uh, but I, I would have paid them that. And I'm walking to my car one night, and, uh, um, and I hear a trumpet. And I think, That's kind of cool. Trumpet, oh, A&M. Herb Alpert. Yes. I must live in L.A. So uh, uh, I, I lived in L.A. I lived in the Miracle Mile, mile for a while, and uh, I worked for IRS for about four years, and that was about four REM albums. And they were my I, I should mention, I should back up a little bit to say that I had interviewed REM in Chicago. In fact, as a longtime insomnia sufferer, I had had a dandy case of insomnia the night before I was to meet REM. Not related, I don't think. But anyway, I called my now predecessor at, our, at IRS saying, will they be in town another day? Because I think I, I didn't sleep very well, and I hear they're really intelligent. Uh, and I'd love a real night's sleep. And, and 
no, I'm sorry, they're moving on to Minneapolis uh, the next day. I got it. Okay. Mm. I drank lots and lots and lots of coffee, and I was given the tip that one of them is more talkative than the others, and put the microphone in front of him and asked him one question, and he pretty much took up the interview. And I got a second wind, or a first wind, I guess you'd call it, <laughs> saying there was no sleep. So, um, anyway, uh, um, I get the sense in, in, we've not met, but I had a chance to look over a lot of stuff about you, and I get the sense that REM is, is kind of one of those really special bands they in are. your life. They are. And, and IRS was a particular time that seemed like exactly. things kind of accelerated. So, 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 you know, I'd worked for a mainstream pop and country label, Ovation Records, but I had idolized IRS records. I knew all about them. Their bands played town. I'd written about, I'd interviewed the English Beat and Wall of Voodoo. I knew a little about them. And a couple, a couple times the executives would come to a Chicago gig. Big city, big market and all. Uh, so I had a chance to meet them and some of them in advance. But I really idolized the label. And REM in particular put in a good word for me. Who would have thought? Here, and here's, here's the deal. So I, I interview REM and they, they're, they're playing Park West, which would be the equivalent of playing, oh, I don't know, uh, the Wiltern in L.A. or something. Yeah. Or, or the Plaza in a way in terms of capacity. Not a bad gig. Um, but they're staying with friends at an apartment on Chicago's north side. So I, I had lots of coffee before I went, and it was hard to find. You know, this wasn't, there wasn't a Starbucks yet. Uh, <laughs> I had to, like, actually make it. And I, I brewed some coffee, and uh, I, I went to this interview, and I, I, like, got through the interview. And th then the couple who, like, owned the apartment or were renting the apartment said, would you like to stay for dinner? I thought, oh, no. This is where they really find out that I'm a blathering idiot because I've had no sleep, and the coffee's about to wear off. But 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 they offered me beer, and that was almost as good. So uh, <laughs> we had dinner, and we had a lot of laughs. And REM actually put in a good word for me. I later found out. Wow. So uh, uh, you know, I, I owed it all to like that unique timing of doing that. I I, I almost like said, you know, I'm, I'm just not qualified to interview them. I haven't had any sleep. And a few years later, you had to kind of watch them move on. Yeah, and you said that was a, you understood it, because well, they moved on to a much bigger label. They, they had been on Letterman, which was not a bad accomplishment, but I got them their first BAM cover, their first Spin cover, their first Musician Magazine cover, their first CMJ cover. And uh, then, then my boss said, do you think you can get them on the cover of, RE, uh, the cover of Rolling Stone? And I'm like, Rolling Stone? Wow. I sent a 16-page pitch along wow. with with, every, with with a bound booklet of, of every pub, every review they gotten and every pr prestigious publication from the LA Times to the New York Times to, to all these covers of spin and musician and uh, uh, lo and behold uh, my timing wasn't bad somebody had just dropped out as a cover subject for Rolling Stone imagine that uh, and they said well you're lucky uh, a we were sort of considering them anyway but B we were supposed to have so and so on the cover and I actually forget who and, and they dropped out. They just weren't available. So let's do the cover. Oh, okay. Man. Cover of Rolling Stone. I have that. I have the signed cover in my office uh, here in the desert to this day. So, uh, uh, you know, that uh, that got me some renown. And I, I, IRS had some other great artists as well. We had hits by uh, Fine Young Cannibals, mm -hmm. Timbuk3, uh, who had a fluke hit. We got them on Saturday. I remember that one. We, we got them on Saturday Night Live. And it was the same thing. Somebody dropped out. I pitched them. They had a number 49 hit, which is not amazing, but, you know. It counts. You, but but you, try, you try having a 40, number 49 hit. I mean, <laughs> you know, um, uh, <coughs> so uh, uh, they got to play on, on Saturday Night Live. Suddenly, I'm this publicity star. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm 31 years old now. 
And did you did you get it? Did you feel like hey, oh, yeah. momentum is happening mm -hmm. right now? I definitely did. But then uh, one day we had a very sobering experience. REM left the label. Their seven album deal was over. We we couldn't quite blame them. Uh, uh, IRS was distributed and marketed by MCA Records now, previously A and M, and uh, overseas by Sony, and uh, that was confusing to a lot of uh, a lot of artists. MCA, Universal, Sony. Um, anyway, they they went they went to Warner Brothers, who offered them a, a, a ton of money, and I, I can't say I blame them. But I went home, like literally depressed that night. I like, you know, don't you know, I, I just was I was crestfallen. I thought, how am I going to go on? I mean. You know, uh, basically, they were my calling card. I helped make them what they were. I mean, they made the music. I don't want to take anything away from that. But You, you had know, a relationship I, with but them. But I had a relationship. Uh, a, a, I like them, and I like their management as people. And, 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 and B, uh, I was kind of hoping to do their, their next uh, seven albums. Uh, so I put in a, a, a resume to Capitol Records, and lo and behold, they called me for an interview. And I'm thinking, God... Uh, this is a step up. Uh, for, for one, these people actually dress. <laughs> you know, they, people actually, like, look in the mirror. They have office hours. They have office uh, The Capitol Tower. I mean, you know, 13 floors. We, we had, like, one floor of a production office on the Universal lot. And we used to have, like, a little for godforsaken bungalow on the a and lot. <laughs> but this was the Capitol, iconic Capitol Tower. Anyway, I interviewed. to moving up to the big leagues from where you well, were. Well, I did. And uh, I was very good at some parts of that, uh, uh, the publicity part of it, but I wasn't so good at the politics. Uh, I'm never good at office politics. Maybe I should have gone drinking with them after work. <laughs> uh, you know, I, 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 I needed some me time. Uh, uh, but anyway, uh, they, I, I came into one of their biggest records of all time, uh, which was Bonnie Raitt's Nick of Time. And it turns out that uh, it didn't take me long to find out that this was an album about coming of age. And it, a lot of people related to it, and a lot of older critics. And by now, uh, older critics were a specialty of mine. I was only 30, 32. But, uh, um, you know, I, 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 my female friends were saying, yeah, man, this is my, this is my anthem. This, this album that just tells me everything I need to know about coming of age. It's wow. one of my top five of yeah. all time. I love and, that. And, you, know, I, you know, that project had already started. I, I want to give credit where credit was due. My, my department that I soon presided over had already started it, and a lot of people did a lot of work on it, but I think I, I, I helped make a difference. And then, lo and behold, uh, uh, the Beastie Boys, the Smithereens. I'll never forget Tina Turner, though, because uh, I, I was getting ready to do a Tina Turner album, and I was very excited about meeting her. But I, I wasn't prepared to meet her the day that she was prepared to meet me. So one day I did not... One day I wore really grubby clothes to Capitol. By now I, I own this job, more or less, and Everybody, everybody, like, looked put together. But I, I decided that I was going to like look like a, like I did when I worked at IRS, which was <laughs> which was kind of grubby. So I get a I get I get a uh, a call from her manager who was Australian, and my wife has asked me never to do like dialects, and I won't. But in, in his Australian accent, he said, uh, "Good day, mate." Um, <laughs> You know, could you meet uh, Tina Turner at half past 12? I'll never forget the half, half past 12. I'll never forget the half past 12 at, at the Troubadour. And not, I'm sorry, not at the Troubadour, at the Sunset Marquee, thinking West Hollywood. Sunset Marquee at her, uh, her bungalow at the Sunset Marquee. And I'm thinking, well, uh, does it have to be today? Yes. Uh, half past 12, please. Well, she'll see you there. Click. So um, I, I look in the mirror and I think, God, do I ever look like not somebody to meet a, uh, an international superstar? But... Uh, at half past 12, there I was at her uh, her uh, bungalow. 
Tell us and about that meeting. So, ru- so what year would this be? So this was about 1989 by now. Okay, so she had already had the big... Uh, she, she had she had her... Private uh, Dancer album. She had her Private Dancer album. She was about to do... Uh, oh, gosh. What was the name of the, 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 follow, the follow-up to that? Uh, it had The Best. Was, uh, right. Oh, yeah. You're simply the best, um, yep. Right. Um, foreign, affa- foreign Affairs. Uh, produced by Tony Joe White. Yeah. Anyway, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I get to her bungalow. I knock on the door. And I, I, by the way, I've now spent three hours preparing a publicity plan for her, which I hadn't planned on doing that day. And she said, I'd like to do one interview and one interview only. One interview and one That's interview only. That's probably not what your plan said. Right, exactly. <laughs> my, my, my plan was to go far and wide and deep. Uh, she said, I would like to do a, a particular writer at Vanity Fair only. End of report. Okay. That's easy. So I went back to my office after uh, our little uh, tea meeting and I uh, called that writer and said, I just met with Tina Turner and she would like you to be the only person to interview her for this album. And he graciously accepted. So that was my first placement into Vanity Fair. Wow. Um, and, and, you know, so, so that was Tina Turner. That was easy. Uh, Smithereens. Uh, uh, they wanted to be on Saturday Night Live, and I, I, I'd done that once with uh, my band Timbuk3, who had a fluke hit, and all of a sudden somebody dropped out, and on like on Wednesday and Thursday they need somebody. Um, but uh, okay, the Smithereens on Saturday Night Live. We had an indie working with me. We had all of my department, and uh, we we started pitching our brains out. And the president of the label said, "What if I called too?" And I said, "Well, gosh, I've never had a president of a label call, uh, you know, somebody I'm pitching, but." Can't hurt. I mean, we're all calling, uh, but make sure that you say you're so and so president of Capitol Records. <laughs> yeah. So he called Use too. the title, and uh, again, somebody dropped. Somebody bigger dropped out, and the Smithereens got the the placement, and they got to sing their hit "A Girl Like You" on a on SNL. So that was cool. Were you there? Uh, I did. I, for some reason or other, I didn't go, and I I, I don't know why. I I had a Chicago. I'm sorry, a New York office uh, that covered for me, but I should have gone. I should have flown right right in. You're, you're you're working uh, on this label. You've got a lot of different kinds of music, a lot of different genres. Right. In in your line of work, is it all just product, uh, or do, does the genre? Because you're really shifting. I mean, Tina Turner and the Smithereens, very different artists. Yes. So talk about how you transition going from one to the other, and and, and, and for, for that matter, the Beastie Boys. Oh yes. yes. And let's not forget, there was a lot of metal on. Uh, uh, there was Poison. There was Great White. Um, uh, I, I, I was always ambidextrous genre-wise. I always liked a lot of kinds of music. I like blues, of course, the Muddy Waters uh, yeah. story earlier. Right, that uh, blues was kind of your, I, I like, your wheelhouse. I, I like what you call power pop, which is the smithereens. And I liked Americana, which you might say uh, uh, Bonnie Raitt was, yeah. but, but we hadn't called it that yet. <clears throat> but she has since won a Lifetime Achievement Award in, for the, the Americana Association. So, yes, I guess she was. Um, uh, and, and the Beastie Boys, uh, I, I liked, but I was never really a hip hop expert. Uh, so um, anyway, uh, and of course, uh, Skip, who runs Little Bar, uh, did the Beastie Boys tour. Yes, did a couple of them, I think. But uh, oh, well, great. Well, so no, I, I had no problem going from one genre to another. I, by the way, I had a metal specialist, heavy, heavy metal specialist, which meant that I didn't have to hang out like all night with the uh, Great White at the, at, the, uh, at, 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 at the Rainbow Bar and Grill. You know, this this guy was only too happy to, and I signed off his expense expense accounts. 
You know, and he always called me boss. Boss. <laughs> last night. Hey, boss. Last night, uh, Lemmy from Motorhead dropped by. I was with Big Great White, and the writer from this metal magazine came by. It was you know, awesome. Okay, uh, just give me your expenses. Yeah, whatever it was. So, but um, it's easy to pitch music that you like and mm-hmm. artists that you like. But there had to be, at some point, in, in the kind of career you had, there had to be some music that you were like, I really don't care for Oh, this. yeah. Oh, and, and was there ever. And, and Capital was a full-service label. Yeah. And, yes, there were artists I just didn't dig. And I remember telling a product manager for one of those artists that I just didn't dig them. And the product manager looked at me quizzically like, yeah, and? <laughs> just do the job? Is that just what do, kind of... Do your job. Uh, you know, uh, and enough was, enough was said. Uh, I worked for like three, three or four more labels. None of them as big as Capital. But then I, I went indie because I, that was really going to be the way that I got to assemble... And by then, I had enough contacts, I thought, to sustain an indie company. Uh, but that, that was going to be the only way that I could approve the, the roster. And there was a little bit of Americana. There was a little bit of blues. And uh, I worked first with a partner. Then I, I divorced, business divorced the partner. Uh, seven months' notice. Uh, it, it was a, a long and, and basically peaceable, peaceable divorce. But then I started Conqueroo, which is my last uh, company. I did that for 18 years. I had, we ended up with five employees, one of which was my wife. <laughs> my wife had been an editor at the LA Weekly, so she certainly knew how to edit. <coughs> and uh, she became editor of our, uh, our, our written materials, but did a lot of other odd jobs. It didn't involve actual pitching, but I had three or four people through all parts of LA, and one of them moved to San Francisco eventually. It didn't matter where they were. Um, we had a pretty good thing going until, uh, until finally uh, last year... Uh, uh, I decided I'd, I'd done it. I'd had enough. Uh, uh, you know, did some math, and yeah, I think I might be able to retire, uh, whatever that is. <laughs> and you're not for, doing it very well, you no, say. No, you're for, I'm for doing you hor- going I'm, to write a book. So. I'm doing it horribly, but, you know, uh, like I say, uh, we moved. And by the way, my, 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 my advice to anybody who's thinking of retiring and, and relocating the same season, don't do it. Yeah. <clears throat> But, the, but a, a, a wonderful house came, came, came out on the market. Actually, it wasn't even on the market yet, and we heard about it. And uh, bought it at a, at, a, at a pretty good price. Well, and then the market topped. Uh, and uh, then sold our house once that had happened. But uh, nevertheless, um, uh, I've been here in the desert. And uh, uh, this summer, I will be starting a book. I, I want to ask you just about how the, how the industry has changed. Sure. Uh, one of my favorite movie characters from the movie Spinal Tap was was Bobby Fleckman's. Mm-hmm. And at that point, the PR guy was appeared to be more like a roadie. Right. How, had, how did that change during your career? And where is it now <coughs> with, with social media and stuff? Is, is there still a place for people sure. like you in this industry? Excellent question. First of all, I decided I was always going to... I'd seen that movie. Well, I... I the movie came out when I was working at IRS, and I decided I needed to be the anti-Bobby Fleckman. <laughs> I mean, uh, I was not, it was never like a, 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 an artist relations director, but I, I, I communicated really well with writers because I was one. So, uh, you know, uh, she was artist, artist relations director at Polymer Records for, for Spinal Tap, and I, <laughs> I was never quite at home with that aspect of my job. Uh, uh, 
and, and a little bit of that was entailed, being the, 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 the kind of conduit at a, at, a, at a party or a reception, you know, getting, getting people, the right people in front of cameras. Actually, that, that part was, was pretty, pretty fun, but never really an artist relations director, and certainly not a Bobby Fleckman. How has it changed? Um, you know, when I started, it was all print, of course. Uh, well, actually, publicity was print, TV, um, uh, not radio. That was that was promotion. It got records added at radio stations. Right. So different, different thing entirely. Different people, and that was a big, big and very different job. But I was in charge of all print, TV, NPR, like as far as uh, uh, you know. And uh, my first NPR piece was actually Johnny Clegg, who was a South African artist on Capitol. And uh, NPR called me, and I actually went, I was in New York, and went down to WNYC and thought, NPR, cool. So uh, I was pre- very prepared for the, for the later announcement that NPR is what sold records. If you could get an NPR piece, it was way more valuable than a, than a record review in Rolling Stone. It really? was way more, way more, it sold way more records than, uh, than uh, uh, you know, reviewing the, the, the LA Times or the New York Times or, 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 or Musician Magazine. It was even... It even sold more records than an appearance on Letterman or, or Johnny Carson. What is it about <laughs> NPR that that just resonates? Well, it, it, it seems to reach intelligent people with deep pockets. And uh, uh, so, you know, later... So my wife listens to it. <laughs> later on in <laughs> my I've career, heard it. you know, NPR was the, was the go-to. How do we get NPR? The, the only other thing that was that important was CBS Saturday Morning. You know, Sunday morning. Those shows. Yeah, those shows. Those Charles shows Carole. sold a lot of records. So uh, those those became the go-to's. But yeah, at some point, computers were invented. While I well, while I was doing this, I mean, I started with a typewriter. You know, I mean, my props at, at IRS records were a typewriter, a Rolodex, and a cup of coffee, and uh, the latter was probably the most important of the three. But uh, uh, in time, computers were invented, and all of a sudden, there were like online magazines and blogs. And, and suddenly, Pitchfork. How do we get reviewed in Pitchfork? You know, uh, uh, but uh, and now, of course, um, and, and by the way, uh, when I got to, got to IRS, and we we're, were at the A&M lot, I, I had driven my, 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 my uh, Nissan Sentra, which uh, was, e- like, eaten by rust from Chicago winters. <laughs> and I parked it next to the Rolls-Royce, owned by the, uh, the head of radio promotion at A&M, <laughs> thinking, okay, I think I get this. <laughs> Maybe it'll rub I, off. I, I think I get it. Um, <laughs> you know, r- radio sells records, and press does not. I, I get it. Cool. Um, I still like working with press, and that's still where I, you know, I don't think I could do radio promotion, and it's different and a whole different discipline. But at some point, press became more important than radio. And, and at some point, getting on Spotify playlists and getting on... Bandcamp playlists and SoundCloud p- playlists and, you know, uh, and, and of course, you know, eventually TikTok and, and Instagram became the things that sell records. And, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe it was a good time to retire because I... <laughs> well, that's I, what I, I wondered. I, I is there a place for a publicity sure. person? Because you can get famous on YouTube now. Rolling Stones still matters. And we would yeah. still... And by the way, publicity mattered more than it did when I got there. And I, by now, I would have been at least at a Nissan Maxima. You know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, uh, because uh, uh, basically it's a singles-oriented uh, uh, industry now, music is, and uh, singles are released at various times, and can the publicity department get a premiere for the single? And if so, could we get a premiere in Pitchfork? Could we get a premiere in Rolling Stone? Could we get a premiere in Consequence? 
And if not, there were a few go-tos who would almost take anything. But we would try to get the, the best possible single premiere we could. And, and by the way, that, that, that resulted in instantaneous clicks. And all of a sudden, you know, I, I, I don't drive Rolls Royce, but uh, <laughs> uh, all of a sudden we were driving better than a, than a, than a, a slushed out, uh, rusted uh, old Nissan uh, Sentra. So for the last 18 years of your career, you were running your own company. And you got to pick and choose your project. That's right. Uh, so talk about some of your favorite the clients that you work with over those years. Well, I got to say, uh, I, I had many of them, uh, and I, I, you know, hundreds of them really. Um, but but one who comes to mind because he just became such a good friend and such a such an idol. So so I'm a, I'm a kid listening to uh, uh, R&B radio in Chicago, like about age uh, 14, and I hear a record by a guy named Bobby Rush. And I think, this is different. I'm listening to a lot of Motown and a lot of Stacks, and all that is really good. But all of a sudden, there's like this Chicago blues record on, on soul radio by this guy named Bobby Rush called Chicken Heads. And I think, I, I think I've tapped into something here, and I'll, I'll, I don't think I know what. And of course, I couldn't Google him. That didn't exist yet. So it took me decades before I, I heard the name Bobby Rush again. And um, one day, I was, I was uh, asked to serve on a... A committee for the Blues Foundation that brought me to Mississippi, and uh, on the committee was Bobby Rush. You're the Bobby Rush of chicken heads. Yes, I am. <laughs> oh my God, you're my idol. Um, anyway, we, we became really good friends, and I worked quite a few records of his. Um, and Bobby Rush had been obscure to at least you know to to, to, to audiences that I worked with, and invisible in the end of the industry that I worked with. But he had kept on making records, like dozens, if not hundreds, of records. And uh, by now, he is uh, making blues records and assigned to a blues label. And I've been hired to work his latest record. And, uh, um, and I'm one of the few people who actually heard his 1971 hit. It's now like 1998. or Which he must have appreciated. 2004, he did. Um, anyway, he, he had left Chicago, where he lived for a while. He went back to where his gigs were in the Chitlin Circuit. So he's living in Jackson, Mississippi. The Chitlin Circuit. I like that. No, it's, I didn't make it's it a real thing. Look yeah. it up. It's, it's a thing. Um, and, uh, you know, he not only became a great client, but quite a friend. And I'll never forget, every, uh, every Christmas Eve, my wife and I would go see a movie. And I would feel, in the, with the advent of the iPhone, I would feel a vibration in my pocket at about 4.45 p.m. on Christmas Eve. We'd be at the movies. And uh, uh, finally, when the movie's out, I'd look, and sure enough, happy, happy holidays to you and your family, Bobby Rush. That's awesome. Every, every Christmas. And he was like that. And, and by the way, you know, for a guy who had a regional hit called Chicken Heads <laughs> on, on Chicago R&B radio that never really crossed over, uh, now I'm walking him down the red carpet of the Grammy Awards, and I would have to say that with, with respect to hundreds of clients that I worked with, and each of them mattered, I, I handpicked them all. You know, some I did better than others with, but Bobby Rush was always somebody that, that he's 86 now, wow. and, and looks about, uh, looks about you know, 68, looks about 70, he is still touring. You know, he was an early contractor of COVID, but got right back out there and continues to tour worldwide. And he's been a lifetime achievement recipient. He's, he's received numerous Grammy nominations and a few awards. And, uh, you know, we've gotten them on the TV. One night, Dan Aykroyd uh, was on uh, the Jimmy Fallon show and asked for Bobby Rush to accompany him. Wow. Oh, know, that's cool. So, I mean, uh, I tried to catapult that into other late-night TV. And, you know, he remained kind of a niche artist in, in a lot of ways. But I would say that looking back on my, my 18 years of running my own company, 
but Bobby Rush was definitely, uh, uh, I don't want to say a mascot, uh, kind of the, uh, in a lot of ways, you know, an artist who, who personified what I was trying to do. Yeah. That's right. great. I have one other question for you. Sure. As we wrap up here. You've worked with so many genres, so many artists, through so many decades of music. But when you go home and you want to relax and you're going to pour yourself an old-fashioned, what do you listen to? The songs that mean something to you. Well, <laughs> uh, I don't know that I came prepared to talk about individual songs, but, but here I'll go. So, uh, uh, and, and by the way, I, I'm not talking about significance of lyrics necessarily as much as milestones in my life. So uh, first, as I mentioned, Hearing Muddy Waters, I Just Want to Make Love to You, the, the, the psychedelic electric version on Electric Mud, a critically scorned album. The critics hated it, yeah, and, uh, uh, but it, it got me into a life of blues. Um, I would say that uh, uh, later on uh, when I'm in college and somebody gives me a tip that I, I might like this band called Cheap Trick out of, out of nearby Rockford, Illinois, um, they became a major factor in my life, and I, I, I love power pop music. So I would say, you know, for lack of a better song of theirs, uh, maybe their biggest or most emblematic hit, Surrender. Surrender. Um, I would say that uh, then uh, I w went to work with R.E.M. And uh, we, we did several albums together, Reckoning, Fables of the Reconstruction, and uh, one of them was Document. And Document was a record that really foresaw the Trump era. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just want to say that uh, their, their, their album, Welcome to the Occupation, uh, I mean, listen to it and tell me if it isn't, uh, you know, uh, uh, what we went through uh, uh, with that. Uh, so there was R.E.M., maybe Welcome to the Occupation and the entire Document album. Uh, I would say that uh, moving to the desert was key, and a lot of that we didn't, didn't end up living in Joshua Tree, but I was always very influenced by Joshua Tree music. So, uh, you know, the Flying Burrito Brothers were, yeah. were and I got to, Chris Hillman was a, uh, a client of mine. Really? From the Flying Burritos. So he didn't get to live with Graham Parsons, unfortunately. He did himself in. But if I had to, if I had to uh, check uh, a song from the Flying Burrito Brothers, it was during their Joshua Tree days, Sweet Desert Childhood by, by Chris Hillman. Um, and then finally, uh, I, I like folk music. Uh, Chicago was a big folk city, the home of John Prine and Steve Goodman. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, from Steve Goodman's first album, a song called You Never Even Called Me By My Name, yep. which I liked because it was written by a, a, uh, a Jewish Chicagoan from, uh, you know, Evanston, Illinois, uh, the Northwestern campus area, who wrote uh, a, 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 the perfect country song uh, put together with found objects, uh, just found lyrics, and it was actually done by a, a renegade country singer named, uh, covered by a renegade country singer named David Allen Coe. Yeah, David Allen Coe, yes. And uh, it was co-written, by the way, by uh, Steve Goodman and John Prine. So I would say that's emblematic of, I mean, I was this punk rock kid, but I was a folk kid. Go figure. I like power pop and I like blues. Yeah. And I would say that those are like the four pillars of my, my musical upbringing and still the things that I listen to when I go home and maybe have an old-fashioned. So you're writing a lot of stuff now on social media. I really appreciate how you're keeping us tied into the history <laughs> of music. You're things that happen today uh, type of articles. You also mentioned that one of the things you're looking forward to is being able to go to a matinee uh, on a weekday in the morning. Do you think you're going to be able to do that now with retirement? You know, I, have, I, I think we spent uh, some of those 112-degree days over at the, uh, the river uh, <laughs> Good. Uh, at, the, at the cinema there. Yeah. Great. So, Great. Uh, and I do yoga every morning at, eight, at 10 a.m. And uh, I give myself that. 
it's a better day when I get to do yoga. Uh, it, it, you know, so uh, yeah, I may never be great at retiring. But, but ask me after writing a book. It's going to be a deep dive, and here we go. Well, we look forward to having you on to talk about the book. I know it's in the nascent stages, but we'll, uh, we'll follow that journey. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Oh, here. I had a blast. We're thrilled to have you in the desert. I'm so glad you're here telling these stories. Well, it's good to be here. All right. Thank you, Gary. Appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, we will be back again with another episode of Big Conversations, Little Bar. You never know who you're going to run into, and you're never going to know who they ran into in their careers. Gary is incredible. I would like to thank John McMullen, our producer and engineer, for another excellent episode today. Gary, thank you for being here. Big Conversations at Little Bar. Thanks for listening to Big Conversations, Little Bar. Join Randy and Patrick next time as we keep the conversation going right here on Big Conversations, Little Bar.